Welcome to Media Path. I'm Fritz Coleman. And I'm Louise Palanker. Here on Media Path Podcast, we like to call your attention to interesting new finds from the entire media landscape. There is so much new content lately, you don't have time to browse everything. So we handpick a couple of items and deliver them right to you, kind of a, a cultural Instacart. That's our job. <laughs> George Santos said, Media Path helped me factualize my resume. <laughs> we also bring you fascinating guests. Today, we have a bounty of riches. We have two authors. Anybody who is a fan of the films from the new Hollywood uh, will know how important a role Karen Black played in those films, like Easy Rider, Five Easy Pieces, some of my favorite movies of all time. If so, you will be inspired by this story. Karen gave up a child for adoption when she was only 19 years old. Years later, the young woman who is her daughter, Diane Bay, set out to research and find her biological mother, and she's written a memoir about her search and her finding and the warm bonding with her mother, Karen Black. It's called Finding Karen Black, Roots to Wings. We're going to talk to Diane and a close family friend of Karen's, Lee Purcell, in just a few minutes. Plus... To say our economy has been on a roller coaster in the last decade is an understatement. Well, as it turns out, past is prologue. Writer Richard Farley, in his latest book called Gonzo Wall Street, talks about the Wall Street in the 60s and what's to be learned from the hair-raising 60s concerning our money markets now. But first... Wheezy, what do you have for us? Well, I've been doing some reading, Fritz. You know how I do. You always do. <laughs> uh, I, I read a book called Lessons in Chemistry by Bonnie Garmus. Elizabeth Zott is a fierce, logical, and brilliant chemist, but she's a gifted chemist in the 60s when her male teachers, colleagues, and bosses want to either take credit for her ideas or simply take her without consent or recourse. Ever resourceful, Elizabeth fends off a groping hand by stabbing it with a pencil. Out of work and on her own raising a daughter, Elizabeth's impressively distinctive personality leads to an opportunity for her to host an afternoon cooking show, which she customizes into a platform to teach and empower women through the unapologetic truth of chemistry. Lessons in Chemistry is a New York Times bestseller with 90,000 reviews on Amazon. That sounds really cool. It's a great book. Nobody thinks of cooking as chemistry. That's right. why I'm bad it at cooking chemistry. and at chemistry because... Well, read this book. You'll get closer okay. to your goal. Uh, I want to talk about another book. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Dude. No, I just was going to ask you what you've been... Uh... I, I, I read a book this week, and, and it's, I, it's from one of my favorite humans on the planet, John Meacham. It's And There Was Light. It's Abraham Lincoln and the American Struggle. I'm a huge fan of John Meacham. He's a presidential historian. He's an author. He's a professor at Vanderbilt University, occasional speechwriter for President Biden. The last book of his I read was called The Soul of America, which was like salve on our national wounds because it proved that regardless of how bad things are politically in this country right now, we have been there before. That's the kind of book this Lincoln book is, too. A great book for this tumultuous era. It's a deep dive into the life of the 16th president. Although he wasn't a particularly religious man, he was very spiritual. He was known as the Redeemer-in-Chief. The book focuses on his moral compass. Lincoln said it wasn't about sitting around waiting for God to tell you what to do. It was about just listening to your conscience. I've read several books about Lincoln, but this one really exposes what a conflicted relationship he had with both his mother and his father. Although 
he's often troubled relationship with them and his often troubled relationship with Mary Todd Lincoln really formed who he was. Morality seems like it's gone from politics these days, but it wasn't back then. Lincoln believed that politics in a democracy was a cross between compromise and moral principle. The part that will catch your imagination is the atmosphere in our country in like 1860 to 1861, just before the Civil War. It's hauntingly familiar with the environment we're in today. Irreconcilable politics, racism, just the tension, and the way Lincoln was able to navigate the toxic atmosphere. You'll find yourself saying, Abe, where are you when we need you? John Meacham, it's a wonderful book. I yes. like it. We can always, I want to read it. Yeah. It's very good. I, I want to read it. I love books about history. We can always turn to Abe for inspiration. Right now, we're going to learn a little bit. Karen Black, an iconic actress of what was referred to as the new Hollywood when eclectic independent films were taking over. She was an actor and a screenwriter and a singer and a songwriter. Some of the groundbreaking films she appeared in were Easy Rider, Five Easy Pieces, Airport 75, The Great Gatsby, Nashville, Day of the Locust. These are like seminal movies. She was also way ahead of her time by playing a trans woman in 1982. She was cast by Robert Altman in the Broadway play called Come Back to the Five and Dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean. Karen had a child at 19 years old, who because of difficult circumstances in her life had to give her up for adoption. And after years of yearning and wondering and researching, she was finally reunited with that child who is Diane Bay, who is with us today from Kentucky via Zoom. Diane has written a really moving memoir about rediscovering her mother called Finding Karen Black, Roots to Wings. Diane, we're so happy to have you with us today. Thank you. And thank you for this book. It's quite touching. You're welcome. And I'm great. I'm pleased to be here. Okay. Well, I'm going to introduce your friend and Karen's close friend. In the studio, we have Karen's, I guess, best friend is safe to say, right? Best friend. Um, a, a talented actress and a director, Lee Purcell. She's a two-time Emmy nominee. She was mentored by Steve McQueen. Ain't bad work if you can get it. Work <laughs> uh, with John Voight, Nick Cage, Orson Welles, Gene Wilder, and R.I.P. Chadwick Boseman. W what did you do with Chadwick? I did a series with him uh, called Persons Unknown. Oh, man, he, what a what a waste. What a beautiful, talented man. Well, he wasn't... I, I just want to correct you on that, if you don't mind. I know I know what you mean when you say what a waste, because he left us so young. But he left such a massive body, oh body of work. And I watched uh, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom again the other night. That was a, that was a oh, monumental oh, and performance. And he was dying when he did that. I know he was. He was very thin. You very thin. Anyway, let me finish your line. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Talk Here about me. <laughs> Uh, you have many film and TV credits. Lee played a prominent role in Karen's life and is really part of the memoir. And, and so, Lee, uh, just before we bring in Diane to put all of this in perspective, when did your relationship start with Karen? Well, uh, Karen and I met uh, a very Hollywood kind of meeting. We were doing an afternoon talk show that Johnny Grant, if you remember. Oh, of course. So Johnny Grant. The Prince of Hollywood. The, the Prince of Hollywood, who <laughs> has a street named after him right there. Uh, he uh, he was doing an afternoon talk show at that time, and we both uh, were sent to the show by our respective publicists. I think it was Karen's second or third film, and it was my first film, and and it was it was shot outside. The show was, and it, and we had like chairs and 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 we were kind of walking around the grass. It was it was a very interesting show, and uh, we were introduced. And we just looked vastly different. 
because I looked like kind of like a Barbie doll because <laughs> I had been uh, done up by you know the team, and and Karen looked like a hippie, and she was wearing I don't know like an assortment of scarves and and hair pieces and two or three pair of eyelashes and <laughs> and kind of floated and and we just went oh my god <laughs> both of us to each other and. It was an interesting meeting because... You knew you were soulmates immediately. We were, yeah. It was like that. Mm-hmm. Wow. It was like you finally find this mm, person again. And you were uh, very close to her all her life and were there in particular toward the end of her life when she was very close to her death and was supportive yes. of the family oh, yes. and supportive of Diane yes. and supportive to Karen's whole family. There's a touching moment when you get sort of reunited with... Um, with Karen's son. Yeah, Hunter. He's Hunter. my godson. Yeah, and so it's it's very lovely. So anyway, we've set the stage, Diane. I'm going to let Wheezy talk, but I did want to say that there are endless adoption stories, and a couple of them from my family, where an adopted child goes in search of their biological parents, and the search and the discoveries can be very complicated. Yours was not. Yours was uplifting, and I'm guessing it went the way you dreamed it would go when you started. Am I right? Oh, I had no, I, I didn't have an, any um, reservations about searching when I was young, but it, I never, you know, after getting to be a teenager, I didn't have expectations. I didn't know how it would go at all. In fact, I hesitated for several months before I sent in my forms because I was just really nervous about what might happen. So um, it, it, what actually did happen was incredible and just blew me away. So for those of us who have been raised by our birth parents, I don't think we have a full understanding of how wrenching and primal is the need to ascertain a connect, a biological connection and you describe that so beautifully for mm-hmm. for people like me that were you know that had the the blessing of being raised by birth parents and knowing this is genetically you know who I come from but your your search for it and then ultimately your finding of it is just absolutely harrowing and I know Fritz Fritz said it went pretty well but there are moments along the way where you're just on your knees. <laughs> so a lot went right. on. So talk about the, the first moment you, you're you holding in your hand the identification of your mother's name and, and take the story for, from there a little bit for us. Sure, sure. So I, I was by the mailbox and I finally saw her name and I was super glad to see it because I wasn't sure if it was going to be there. And then I went right to my computer and I of course, Googled the name because that's what, you know, that's what you do. And right away, all these links popped up. And the very first one was this uh, Wikipedia link. So I clicked on it. And here's this this famous actor that I, you know, I knew who she was. And in fact, I had been in the movie theater when I was like 14 years old watching The Great Gatsby not knowing I was watching my own mother. Oh my gosh. And so I clicked on it and I thought, well, you know, this can't be right. You know, no way. I'll just read it just to make sure that, you know, it's not real. And all of the facts just lined up. 
and and my stomach was just turning and I got chills all over and I click back to Google and I'm realizing, well, all, all of these links are about her. <laughs> so so I, I didn't know what to think. And I, I called my husband and I said, well, you know, I think I might have just found my mom in like two seconds. <laughs> it's, supposed to take, it's supposed to take months or years, you know. And uh, and of course, this was before all the DNA stuff came out. So okay, it's another whole yeah, story. Yeah, yeah. But um, so I said, well, what should I do? Do you think I could try to find her address or something? And he goes, well, is she on Facebook? Oh, well, sure, she'll be there. And I sat back down and I messaged her on her fan mail message uh, Facebook page and. That was that's as quick as it was. It's great. Uh, you you yeah. mentioned your husband. One of the touching parts of the book was to find out how emotionally invested he was in your journey. When you were weeping, he was weeping before you were weeping at what you discovered and, and the direction it took. It was so touching and how supportive he was throughout the whole process. Thank you. Yeah. So you, uh, I, I mean, another, so many interesting parts of this, the the difference between the life that your biological mother was leading in Hollywood and the life that you were growing up in, we'll call it a middle class life in Illinois and Kentucky. Describe what your life was like before you discovered your biological mother and describe your relationship with your adoptive parents. Okay. Um, well, I grew up in um, what used to be called a, a white collar middle class family. My father was a speech pathologist and my mom was a stenographer. But then when I was five, she had what they used to call a nervous breakdown. And of course, this was before antidepressants and, and uh, talk therapy and everything that we have now to deal with this kind of thing. So she ended up in the hospital on, on terrible meds and she was she was a mess for a long time. So not only did I not have my birth families, I did not have my um, other roots, you know, that I didn't have any grandparents that I looked like or aunties to, you know, tell me stories, nothing. And I also didn't have a maternal link with my adoptive mother for, for many years. So that was really difficult. So, um, but I had a really good relationship with my father. So that that was the big blessing in my life, how great he was for me. And he really stepped up when my mom had so many problems to raise me and my sister. So that was really good. Right. And then you step into this Hollywood land and, <laughs> you know, you, you're walking very carefully at first, but you find that everyone is, is quite loving and also more emotionally expressive than what you had experienced. And so it was quite a revelation. Talk, talk about that a bit. Yes, it was so fascinating to just be in the room with these creative people because my parents were pragmatic um, people and I married into a pragmatic family. Mm -hmm. So I didn't, I wasn't surrounded with creative people at all. So to just list, just sit there and just, be surrounded and listen to the banter and the the creative throwing ideas back and forth among them. It was eye-opening and wonderful. You know, before we came in the studio, Weezy and I were having a conversation about um, 
how beautifully your book was written. I said, I wonder if she had a ghostwriter with her. And Weezy said, no, I, I think she's very creative and because she had great creativity on both her biological mother and biological father's side. So she was channeling all this energy and finally had a way to use it. Does that make sense? That makes total sense, I believe. Right. Yes, and you, my, but you were also painting and you were writing poetry your whole life with just no one really to share it with who understood the gift yes. and the joy that it was for you. Yes, if I can throw in something. Oh, sure. Please leave. You're irritating now. You just keep talking. <laughs> I know. I just chatterbox. I can't shut up. What can I say? Well, Lee Purcell really took me under her wing. When I first went out there, she was one of the first people I met. And she was just lovely to me. She mm. she was like my grounding. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Well, I was going to say that, you know, I was experiencing the reverse of this in that all those years, and it's it's in the book, uh, all those years that they were uh, apart. You know, Karen uh, talked about her and and like, where is she? And is she happy? And did she get a good family? Is she alive? You know, what is she doing? And every year around Diane's birthday, Karen would get very sentimental and, and kind of And we ought sad. to say that Karen searched for you as you were searching for her, right? So there was yeah. a longing on her side of the equation. Oh, there was a huge, but it was a different, it was a different kind of longing. Mm-hmm. And I encouraged her to go on the National Adoption Registry and she thought about it for a long time, and then she decided not to. And I, I said, well, why not? Because if she's there, then you will connect. And she said, because I'm scared. What if she's going to hate me? Mm-hmm. What if she doesn't want anything to do with me? Mm-hmm. What if she's upset because I had to give her up? And so she didn't do that. And then when, ugh, this part just kills me. But the day came when, when um, Karen called me, oh, and she and she could barely speak, and she just said, "I found her." Mm, oh my! And and I was like, I, "I'm like, you found who?" <laughs> and she said, "Well, she found me." I said, "Who?" And she said, "My daughter." Mm. And it was now she has another daughter, Celine, who is who is an adopted daughter. Well. Yeah, yeah. But um, and I and I was speechless because I had been through this journey with her for all those years, and then and we were both just we were staggered. We were just it was so shocking and so incredible. And I said, "Okay, so what's next?" And she said, "She's coming out here." Like, what was so oh. beautiful in the book was how her friends like you yes. and her family immediately embraced Diane. Immediately. There was no transitional period where uh, we're a little no. standoffish to see. They, they just, they, they, they bathed her in warmth and it was really lovely. I well, mean, I, we were thrilled. It was very evolved. You it know was, what I mean? We, I, I guess so, but, but I was so happy because I'd heard about it for 30, 30 something, 40 something yeah. years mm-hmm. and, and then to... And to have it there, and then she, uh, oh my gosh, and she walked in the, she was there in Karen's house, and it was almost like an apparition, and she was beautiful, look at her, <laughs> and and she does have resemblance to both of her parents, to mm-hmm. to her biological father, and, and who's a great guy, and who accepted her immediately, and to Karen, and, and then when I saw them just talking and painting together, it was... It was it. It was really, really something. 
Yeah, it, it opened a door to healing her soul yes. in the places, the way she described, you describe it in the book, and you're so lyrical and, and uh, eloquent in your in, in your language, it's, it's almost poetic, all of your prose are, are very poetic, but the puzzle pieces that were scattered come together to make a picture, because you're able to see why you why you are you, this search for identity that we're all on, right? But for your, for you, it was more fractured. And describe the healing yeah. of, of knowing these folks and getting connected with your dad and your brother and, and your, your your sisters. and my, my father's side of the family was just as welcoming. And uh, my biological father is still alive, and I'm sure he won't mind me saying so. His name is Robert Benedetti, and he's a guy who's been behind the scenes in Hollywood a long time. He was... Um, with Ted Danson and his production company. He was, he lived um, in the, in the LA area a long time. He was Dean of, uh, of Cal arts. And uh, he told his kids about me when they were teenagers. <laughs> so like Lee was talking about, they always knew also. So they were all like, Oh my goodness, here she is. We finally get to meet her. And you said that his biological son looks uh very much like your son yeah yeah one of my boys has the has the italian genes i guess more than others and when i first met ben too he had my eyes like my brother ben and i have the same eyes (laughs) they're even they're even a little off kilter in the same way (laughs) that was spooky and really cool yeah your father told you that you were adopted at a fairly young age. And I'm wondering how difficult it was, first of all, to get the concept of adoption and how that affected your life from that point forward. It seemed like you were six or seven years old, right, when he told you you were adopted? I was four. Oh, I was Lord four because we were going to adopt my baby sister. So he used that to explain it to me. And I really didn't understand much. But what he said to me was, well, the stork brought you to her but she couldn't keep you so she gave you to us uh-huh. and so to me you know at four-year-old brain i knew about that stork you know so that <laughs> made sense to me yeah the stork just stopped at the wrong house <laughs> right and you know you get a letter for your you neighbor and you take it over you know <laughs> but but and Weezy made this great point earlier, it, it, talking about uh, your identity and trying to find your place on the planet, not knowing your biological roots. Um, you said that uh, you had always, even from that young age to the point where you discovered your mom, you always wondered what you looked like. Growing up without knowing your people, it was impossible to feel like someone. That's very profound. And then another time you had a, a sort of the same emotion is when you were walking through Karen's home and you were looking at these pictures on her wall of all the members of your family and you finally felt connected to the planet because there was your history, sort of hmm. an Ancestry.com hanging from the walls <laughs> in her house. I mean, that, that to me, gave me goosebumps when I read it. I really feel strongly about that. I think because most people don't even understand how much their identity is formed by those around them, whether or not they end up having a really good relationship with their parents and siblings when they're grown, those funda- foundational years, you're looking in the mirror and you're seeing a little bit of your mom, maybe your grandma, your dad, 
you're seeing you're you're moving the same way. And what was one of the really weird things is that I moved just like Karen. Mm. I could. It was really spooky to watch her move and do things and sit and everything just like me. Right. So, but I think that people that grow up in a in a traditional situation where they know their biological relatives don't. I don't think that it 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 means so much to them, but it is really foundational. And it and other adoptive people have said to me that they understand what I mean when I said. I, I couldn't see myself. Right. And I think it's really even know what you look like. Yeah, it's it's even more profound coming from your direction because for those of us who grow up with our genetic relatives, we're striving to differentiate ourselves. We're striving yes. to be unique. <laughs> and, and and you're searching for the similarities. So it's a it's a these push pulls of life, right? Right. Lee, here's we want to get the opinion of a, an objective third party here. Okay. You've known I Karen. I feel like I'm an insurance agent. You're, you're, <laughs> well, we're going to check the actuary tables here and see if what you're saying is true. Uh, but um, knowing her for this period of time, mm-hmm. seeing her physically and knowing her character traits, what are her similarities with Karen? Oh, boy. That's a really interesting. <laughs> Put me on the spot. Well... I mean, she felt like she had similarities, but you she, notice as an outsider. I, I do. You know, I see. I don't. I don't think that that Diane's eyes look like Ben. Uh, I, I think that Diane's eyes look like Karen. They are a different color. Karen had very uh, sky blue eyes, mm-hmm. but the shape of their eyes. And there was a really, and it's in the book. And uh, and when we finally make the movie or the miniseries, whatever it's going to be from the book, it, this scene will be in it because it's a great scene. But when Karen, because Diane is not like a makeup holic, <laughs> <laughs> like that's putting it mildly. She can stop at any time. <laughs> she can stop. But <laughs> but Karen and and I and we were always experimenting and uh, as roommates and, and so forth. But. Uh, but so there, there was a time where Diane wanted to, I, I don't know, you can tell the story better than I do, but Karen taught Diane how to do her eye makeup, which was yes. easy for Karen because they had the same shape eyes. And mm-hmm. I thought that was an incredibly sweet and powerful, you know, they only had a year together. Exactly a year. Yeah, exactly, oh, exactly yeah. one year from August And 8th. the Shakespearean third act of this whole thing yeah. is that... You reestablished a relationship with your mom, and you were there to usher her to the other side, uh, uh, which was a gift to both you and her. It sort of completed her life and your life. And yeah. I mean, honestly, it, not to trivialize it, but it sounds like a screenplay. It sounds like it uh, is actually going to be a screenplay. Oh, well, see there, I'm brilliant <laughs> because okay. it is. I mean, we are, the three of us. We have a. It's Diane and me and our partner Carrie Cosmo. Carrie's here. He's our in. He's our. Um, our studio audience. He, he's playing a, the part of our studio audience. He's a, is, yes, Carrie is a literary agent, and he was Karen's literary agent uh, towards the end of her life. And so the three of us have a partnership, and we will be doing either a feature or a uh, limited series. And we're what a great idea! Yeah, it's going to be great. Will you get to play your mom in this thing? No. <laughs> no. 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 It'll be it'll be a Hollywood actress. Well, I uh, be, before we close, I want to talk a little bit about the the theme of melancholy that you kind of identify a 
you know, a, a terminology for this feeling that you've had your whole life sitting up in a tree and having this profoundly uh, joyful sadness that overwhelmed you. And it, you you define it, and I kind of, I was thinking that maybe it's a hope in the yearning because of the possibility of its fulfillment, so that you, you kind of identify that there's a need and that identification steers your steers you towards finding what you need as if you knew in some way that it wasn't just purely sad. Talk about that for a moment. Yes, I, I had this feeling all my life and it was it was almost soulless for me. It, it's it's sad and sweet. I guess like I guess bittersweet is the term. Mm-hmm. And I never understood it until I had a profound experience with Karen Lee. You probably were there. It was Academy Awards um, 2012 at Andy Timoner's house when her and Azalea Snail were on the piano and they were singing together. And Stephen randomly posted it in October when I was already knowing Karen and it just tore my soul apart and I didn't know what to make of it. So I started journaling and trying to figure out what happened. What I realized is that I really had a lot of anger issues toward Karen. I didn't know it at the time. I never felt angry toward her ever, but it started coming out. And as I worked through it, I figured out that this melancholy was actually what what the adoption community calls the primal wound, which mm. is this separation at birth from your mother that's just so traumatic that adopted people sometimes never get over it. And But I had that, but then I also had some type of memory of being in Karen's womb. And so there was this, this warm memory that I had carried with me all my life wrapped in this sadness and it was Karen mm-hmm. and, and she had been with me all my life. Right. And, and there's a, pre, a prenatal, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, just if, you know, we wonder what, what are, when babies are gestating, what, what do they, what do they know or what are they feeling? Are they, I think they know everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Everything. Everything. Yeah. And then they come out and they have to be human like the rest yes, of us. Yes, that's right. But you heard her singing for nine months, you heard that the that yes. voice. Go ahead, Fritz. Yeah. Uh, before this gets away from us, you're a, a, a beautiful writer. You have a great gift, and you're a great poet. And there's a poem in there that really resonated with me called Ember or Embers. Have mm-hmm. you got your poems memorized? Would I put you on the spot if I were to ask you to read that? Because it so describes your feelings in your journey. Do you All mind right. reading that? I have my book here. <laughs> I don't know what page it is exactly. It's available on I, Amazon.com if you're... Uh, all right, okay. I got it. That, this was written at, right after I had figured out this idea that Karen had been with me all my life. Okay, it's called Ember. How could you deny me you? All these years, the vast empty places echo where you belonged. Your song rips through my heart unstops a hardened place not known before. There it is, you abandoned me. I should have joined your song, the song that completes me, 
that touches me like fire in my bones. But you did not know your fire followed me. I have been an ember when I could have been a flame. God, give me time. Please, please, sweet time. Help me to forgive her. I have just found my life. Oh, God. Lord, have mercy. Oh, my. Have you published your work? It's right there. It's <laughs> No, it's, just, it's in this book, but I mean, like a freestanding book of your poems, because you really have a great gift. And she's Thank a great you. painter as well. She's a tremendous I know, another painter. Uh, touching part of the story was when you got to paint that mural with your mom on the side of yep. Karen's house, yep. which was like your, your final, final artistic collaboration Aww. with your mom. Yeah. 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 That, that was, was really beautiful. So uh, before we let you go, what what can you share with us about where to find what you're doing and where we can find a movie if it's to be? Okay. Um, I'll let Lee talk about the the, um, the video aspect of things. It's, I don't know that much about it, but I have two websites. I have dianebay.com where I have my paintings, and I have findingkarenblack.com with information on the book. I'm on Facebook also, those two two things, Diane Bay Artist and Finding Karen Black on Facebook too. All right. We'll have all of this in our show notes. And, and Lee, how about you? Where can folks find you? Well, uh, let me just say, let me. Uh, Fritz mentioned it a moment ago. I just want to say the book is available on Amazon.com and it is yeah. called Finding Karen Black, Roots to Wings. And it's it's a great read, I know, because I read it from the very first draft onward, and it is a really great read. And uh, and like I mentioned earlier, we are putting together a a movie or or a limited series. We're not quite sure what yet, um, based on the book. And give us time, and 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 we will post all of that information. My website is Lee at no, I'm sorry, it's. LeePurcell.com is my website. And before we go, talk about your theater project, which is awesome. I love theater on radio and theater. Oh, the oh, sure, yeah. I, I, I'm. Uh, in addition to being, you know, an actress in film and television and on the stage, I'm also a radio play nerd, <laughs> and and I, I'm, I produce at, with a partner, a a group called HollywoodRadioPlayers.com, and we do. Um, Classic radio plays from the golden age of, of radio, which was the 30s through the 50s, pretty much 54 it ended. And and we have a, a company, the Hollywood Radio Players Company. There we are. There's there's our, our thing, which I have to rewrite. I'm also the writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, it, but I don't write the plays, obviously. But there are some plays right there that we have up. We have... Six and and what is exciting about our group, our company, and our our shows is that it's radio that you can see. Oh. And because we developed, we created a way of doing this on Zoom. We use very sophisticated special effects, sound effects, uh, music. We do era-specific costumes, even though you only see us from the chest up, but it's all specific. How fun. Yeah, it's really, really fun. And again, it's HollywoodRadioPlayers.com. We're also on YouTube, Facebook, et cetera, et cetera. And there you see um, our members. And uh, we are about to post our seventh show. We'll be posting that in, in uh, February. But right now we have all those shows up and and they are really great shows i have to say thank you so much for being here you really added a three-dimensional aspect of learning about I'm, karen and her daughter diane thank you so here. much now go scrape your windshield 
<laughs> She's in icy Kentucky today. Yeah. Oh, Diana, was just you were awesome. A beautiful book. I hope beautiful. it brings you enormous success. It Thank will. you so much. You're beautiful welcome. Book. Great to talk Thank to you. Thank you so much. Take All care. right. Do we have victim number two? Victim. Survivor. <laughs> oh, survivor number one is leaving. Yeah, I want you to leave. I, it was a pleasure to get to oh, know you. Oh, yeah, and we'll be talking. Okay, I hope so. Oh, yeah, we will. There we go. Let me, oh, and let me we swap up. out the books, and here comes Rich. Let this is our a graceful handoff. <laughs> you are a joy. Richard Farley is a great writer and has his finger on the pulse of Wall Street. He wrote a great book earlier about Wall Street. And here's his latest one called Gonzo Wall Street, Riots, Radicals, Racism, and Revolution. How the go-go bankers of the 60s crashed the financial system and bamboozled Wall Street. Richard, so nice to have you. Nice to be here. Thank you for having me. You, you talk about the corruption of the banking system in the 60s. How was the banking system corrupt back then? Well, you, 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 you've got to think about the banking system uh, in, in a bifurcated sense, because these were the days of Glass-Steagall, when you had the commercial banking system and the investment banking system. And the investment banking system dealt with mergers and acquisitions advice and stock trading and underwriting stocks and bonds and uh, what today we would call private equity. Uh, and, and that was where most of the corruption took place. The commercial banking system was much more highly regulated and uh, was m much more low-flying as compared to the high-flying that went on in the investment banking industry. The other difference was commercial banks had real regulators. They had um, the OCC, the Federal Reserve, state banking regulators investment banking in those days had self-regulation which meant the principal regulator for most of the investment banking community was the new york stock exchange and while the sec certainly was a regulator that dealt with a great many things in the story i tell which is a story of how insolvent investment banks were allowed to continue to operate ultimately resulting in a financial crisis the solvency of investment banks was regulated by the New York Stock Exchange, which was really a club. Mm -hmm. And uh, the SEC and Congress, which should have been a lot more aggressive in keeping an eye on what the New York Stock Exchange did, uh, instead had a very laissez-faire, hands-off approach. And, and that was the root of the problem. And uh, it's interesting you point out the lax uh, um, um, regulation of the SEC. I think we saw that as recently as the Madoff scandal, where four or five times the SEC was made aware of this malfeasance. But because of the politics of the SEC, and that's another thing I want to talk to you about, the politics of it, they weren't able to, they never prosecuted him or never dove deep until this thing just, the head on this boil popped and it was an international scandal. Right. Uh, it, it was um, uh, a, a similar lapse in regulatory oversight, uh, but in this case, uh, for different reasons. Uh, although politics certainly played a, a role, a, a, as you see in the book. Um, the SEC under President Kennedy came up with a in-depth study of of wall street uh with a view towards coming up with the remedies 
to bring forward the securities laws, the federal securities laws, which were passed in the 1930s. And not much really happened between the 1930s and the 1960s. And Kennedy, whose father, Joe Kennedy, was the first chairman of the SEC, thought there was potential problems as a result of Washington not uh, having a good idea of actually what, what was going on. Uh, and that's and that study brought forth a lot of very good reforms. What it didn't focus on was how shaky the capital structure was for most of the investment banks, including some of the largest. It gets so intricate that folks on Capitol Hill don't necessarily understand all the intricacies and all the different ways that you can cheat and that you can leverage, et cetera, and or folks on Capitol Hill are getting rich off of the laxness. Well, in, in, in this case, it wasn't getting rich. In, in, in this case, there was a sense after uh, the Kennedy study was done and in 1964, when uh, amendments to the securities laws was passed, were passed, that this was the end of it, that we were done and, and we had done what was necessary to protect investors for another 30 years. And what happened shortly after 1964? Well, you had Vietnam, you had riots in the streets, you had major distractions away from Wall Street so that the attention of policymakers in Washington really moved away from w Wall Street to other areas of profound concern. And when that uh, pivot happened in, in 1964, that was when uh, it, it happened to coincide with the largest bull market in, in history at, at that point. Uh, you had... I'm sorry. You go, you go ahead, finish your thought. <clears throat> right. You you had a massive increase in stock trading. You had a massive mergers and acquisitions wave with the conglomerate mergers that really exploded around that time. You had uh, enormous amounts of uh, IPOs in the hot new issue market. It, it started what was referred to as the go-go era. Uh, and, and that really took place at a time when Washington thought it had created a very safe regulatory regime for Wall Street, when in fact it hadn't. And at the end of that wave, like 1970, according to your book, that's when we came up with a phrase that ever since 2008 we're very familiar with, which is too big to fail, right? Right. And so, a member of the club would float their members until they can hand it off to the taxpayer. Well, for, that's exactly right. So, what happened was, and you got to remember, the, 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 this is when Glass-Steagall was operative. Now, we, we talk about the risks that have happened when Glass-Steagall came down and you had commercial banks, investment banks merging, and the risks inherent in the securities business sort of polluting or infiltrating um, insured deposits through the FDIC. And we saw in 2008 what the, the risks of, of that were. But when you had this separation, you had other risks. And one of those risks was that it was very hard to enter the securities business unless you were already in it. And that was done purposefully. The New York Stock Exchange had a number of rules to keep entrants out. Why? Because they had a monopoly and they wanted to keep their monopoly. You couldn't go public and be an investment bank that's a member of the New York Stock Exchange in those days, really until 1970. Um, you had to have a majority of the revenues that your aggregate business generated in the securities business. So that meant insurance companies, 
uh, and industrial companies couldn't own investment banks. And obviously through Glass-Steagall, commercial banks couldn't own in, 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 in investment banks. So you had structurally a small capital industry. And with the exception of Merrill Lynch, which grew very large by having its partners keep its money in the business, most of the other investment banks, including some brand names and some of the largest, were really run with a insufficient capital base. Now, as we mentioned, in 1964, you had this explosion of, of, of business. And you also had, importantly, uh, the, the, the computerization of Wall Street uh, in, in, a, in a very robust and profound way. You could not compete in the mid-1960s on unless you made continuous investments in upgrading your computer systems. And that takes capital. And, and, and why make that investment when I can take the money out as partners in these firms and go buy a yacht? So you, you, you had incentives that were not really aligned with safe operation. And some of the least well-capitalized firms or, or the m most poorly capitalized firms we're the most powerful on the board of directors of the New York Stock Exchange. So you had those who were the worst offenders in many ways in the most powerful seats to be regulating themselves. Talk about so some it, of the more fascinating uh, and or corrupt characters uh, that you that you write about in your book. For example, uh, well, you pick somebody. Of course, we want to hear about Roy Cohn, but talk about Francine Gottfried. Yeah, Francie Gottfried wasn't um, a corrupt individual. She was a victim of what was back then a, a, a very sexist industry. It's hard to imagine today. Francine Gottfried was 19, 20-year-old woman who worked at, uh, at Chase Manhattan as a key punch operator. This was back when many computers still had punch cards. And uh, she worked there, and she was a very attractive young woman. And what happened was uh, a group of men would wait for her to exit the subway each day so they could oogle her. And in 1967, uh, it, it became such a large group that there were literally tens of thousands of men oogling her as she exited the subway oh to try God. to go to work each day. And instead of this being something that was condemned as pretty bad behavior, uh, it became almost a national fad. Uh, uh, this, these, these men oogling her was, was, was featured in newspapers. Uh, she was invited to go on the Tonight Show. Hugh Hefner offered to give her a, a centerfold in Playboy. It was oh, viewed man. sort of good, harmless fun. Now, what was interesting was two years later, Collar J, who was one of the early feminists, decided to flip the tables. And she and, and, and some of her allies at the same subway station on Wall Street started oogling the men and going <laughs> up and pinching their uh, body parts. And she also had a film crew that followed them around to show how outrageous this behavior was. That was really ordinary course, unfortunately, uh, on Wall Street at, at the time. And it was through Carla Jay, who I, I interviewed for the book, that the Martin concepts of, of sexual harassment became ingrained in our laws so now you have powerful it, it, women you have janet yellen now things are different in this era things are very different uh but it's amazing that in 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 your lifetime and mine that this behavior was considered to be you know harmless fun 
when, of course, it was uh, it was nothing of the sort. And she found a way to turn the tables. She did. A uh, very interesting woman and um, uh, is, is still around and I think still teaching uh, at, at NYU. You you yep. mentioned briefly um, the effect of a third party candidate on the business markets. And the first serious one we saw rise in American politics after Teddy Roosevelt was Ross Perot. How, how I, I don't remember. Well, actually, you, you, you could argue it, it was George Wallace. Oh, there who, we go. I'm, I'm yeah. sorry. You're exactly who, right. Um, unlike R- Ross Perot. But Ross George Perot, I mean, the first one that didn't scare the hell out of everybody is what I'm saying. <laughs> right. But, but yeah. I, I mean, I don't remember it because I wasn't paying attention. But did that affect the wall? Because I was like a throwing a huge monkey wrench in the system there. Did, did it affect the markets at all? Uh, it, 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 it didn't really affect the markets. Now, as you know, Ross Perot is a major character in my book. Mm-hmm. Because he had the idea that uh, because the Wall Street firms had not invested, many of them, in in appropriate computer technology, that this created a real opportunity for EDS, which was Ross Perot's firm, which became the hottest high flyer technology company in the uh, 1960s of this era, because he came up with a way to computerize uh, Medicaid and Medicare and processed Mm -hmm. all the medical claims. Uh, and uh, uh, that made him a very wealthy man. And he saw the um, uh, the disaster of the back offices on Wall Street that were were causing. It was really the beginning of the crisis that we talk about in the book because of the failure to invest. And Ross said, hey, if I get in on Wall Street, I could do for Wall Street what I did for Medicaid and I could become effectively the back office operator, the computer operator for all of of, of these financial institutions and obviously make many billions along the way. Uh, What Ross learned, which is what a lot of people learned, is when you go to Wall Street and try to beat the Wall Streeters at their own game, oftentimes it's you that that gets fleeced. And Ross Perot ended up losing hundreds of millions of dollars in his foray into Wall Street. Well, speaking of computers, you also talk about the fact that part of what was wrong with the 60s was uh, outdated technology. I mean, these days we have computer day trading that have uh, completely gone on to dictate the market on any given day. But back then they didn't have all that stuff, right? No, it's, it's you know, today billions of shares are traded every day on the exchanges in, in, in the aggregate. It was a very big day on the New York Stock Exchange if 10 million shares traded in the late 1960s and 15 or 20 million shares a day overwhelmed the system. Okay. So just to give you a sense of, of, of how the t- technology really changed Wall Street, that number, the average trading volume, uh, g- g- gives you a sense of how things had changed. Now, the technology that United States investment banks were using, for the most part, in the late 1960s, were you know really 1950s or even 1940s technology. They also didn't um, have the foresight to invest in tech. They they did mm-hmm. not see the future. Correct. Exactly. With a few notable exceptions, like Merrill Lynch, mm-hmm. which uh, was always committed from very early days to having the best technology, very few of the investment banks followed suit. And when this trading volume exploded, um, their systems became overwhelmed. Now, another thing to consider 
is, and this is crazy when you think about it now, but in the 1960s, in the late 1960s, when a share traded, a physical certificate moved, mm -hmm. okay? Now, t today and ever since around 1971, all transactions on public markets are done by computer book book entry. There's no physical movement of paper. Right. That was not the case then. Mm -hmm. uh, we still had stock certificates and runners and cages and, and people. And of course, when you had this explosion in volume beginning in 64, that system became overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. You would have the same share of stock traded five times and still in the name of the previous fifth owner. And that's because, when the first bailout took place because we were so de interdependent upon this working. Correct. And you're obligated to credit the customer who bought it with that stock certificate. And after a while, if you couldn't locate it, you had to go in the market and buy it again. Oh, so A yeah. lot of these banks lost control of their inventory <laughs> and their insolvency was also uh, majorly caused by the fact that they had to go out and spend money to correct their inventory problems, right? So you had people credited with stocks they didn't own. You had people charged for margin loans they never borrowed. You had people who did make margin loans, never charged for it. And all of these problems ultimately became hundreds of millions of dollars in the aggregate. Now, something else that happened. Once organized crime in New York, and of course, organized crime in New York in the 1960s was a much bigger economic factor than it is today. Obviously, when Rudy Giuliani came in and, and Rico came in, that that was uh, reduced in magnitude. But this was the heyday of the mafia. And when they learned that the back offices of these Wall Street banks were out of control, they infiltrated it and ended up stealing hundreds of millions of dollars of um, of, of stocks themselves, which further added to the problem. You know, these days, uh, mergers and acquisitions are a big part of the conversation on CNBC. I mean, there's one today where Showtime is going to merge with uh, Paramount Plus or whatever, whatever the one is. But that and that that seems to be a, a motivating factor for companies. Just the only way you don't die is to keep getting bigger. But that wasn't the case so much in the 60s, which is what you talk about in the bulk of your book. Well, it, it depends which industry you were in. It was not really the case for Wall Street firms. Um, the consolidation really began with this crisis, with firms saying, gee, I don't have enough capital. Uh, I need to find someone to marry to sort of bail me out. Uh, and the last um, part of the book talks about those shotgun weddings and how that began the, the consolidation of what was, for the most part, a mom and, and pop industry. Uh, but there were a lot of mergers and acquisitions in the 1960s because of people like Charlie Bluthorn at Golf and Western and, and IT&T, the conglomerates who thought that I could apply scientific management techniques on companies of any industry, right? Now, this this theory was discredited by the market when the stocks of the conglomerates didn't perform all that well. But you would have companies that owned an oil company, motion picture, you know, rail cars, all sorts of disparate industries. And what it really was, in many respects, was an accounting gimmick. 
Okay. I worked for one of those companies. I worked for General Electric when I worked for NBC for 40 years. And NBC yep. was purchased by General Electric. And General Electric made uh, jet engines and refrigerators and various things. And they didn't own media companies. But they did what you said. They put their their management imprimatur on these media companies. And media doesn't work the way the uh, jet engine factory works. No. And because there's a creative factor and all that sort of thing. So it was not a it was not a completely successful merger. No, it ended very badly, as we've seen in the Jeff Immelt era. Um, and there's a school of thought that said really GE's success during the 80s and 90s was driven principally by GE Financial, mm-hmm. uh, which was not subject to the same regulation that other banks were. And, and its aggressive lending practices generated a a tremendous amount of of earnings for GE. Um, So it was really a hedge fund that owned a bunch of other companies. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm not sure I buy that theory, but um, uh, it is is certainly one that a number of writers have. uh, There there are two good books out now about Jack Welch and the GE era, one by David Gallus, New York Times, another by Bill Cohan, uh, who uh, is a former banker and also wrote for Vanity Fairies at Puck now. Um, but yes, GE was in many ways the last conglomerate. Mm-hmm. Um, and the accounting gimmick that worked in this wasn't really a gimmick per se, it was legal. But if, if my stock traded at 12 times earnings or, or 20 times earnings, and I do an acquisition of a company that trades at five times earnings, if their earnings now get 12 times multiple, I've made money just because I own that company now, Mm -hmm. even if I do nothing in terms of synergies or upgrading. I remember when GE sold the company to Comcast, Mm -hmm. um, uh, GE had this, uh, their main goal was to stay a blue chip stock. So they would buy um, uh, an entity and the minute that entity stock slipped below where it was when they purchased it, they dumped it because they didn't want it to taint their blue chip status. So I'll well, never... then that gets back to the financial business. Mm-hmm. Because they had a AAA credit rating, they could borrow extremely cheaply. Mm-hmm. And if they could then lend that money out at higher rates, you had a very successful operation going on. And GE could borrow cheaper than even the largest banks in the country because it was thought to be so safe and blue chip, as, as you said. But but the tag to that story is when Comcast bought the company, and as they always do when there's an acquisition, they send one of their uh, representatives out to speak to the newsroom where I worked uh, to, to assure everybody there won't be mass layoffs. And, and I'll never forget this guy's speech, and it was such a great description of the way GE does business. He, he said what I just said to you, that once their stock dips below where they their purchase level, they bail on it so it so they can keep their status. And so when they sold the company, they only had a 25% profit margin in the owned and operated stations. Well, in any other business on the planet, if you have a 25% profit margin, you are in high cotton, my friend. So this guy from Comcast comes in and said, well... GE sold the company because it was only making a 25% profit margin. Comcast comes in and said, 
we'll take a business with a 25% profit margin. And they bought it and they turned it around. I mean, their, what greased their wheels was that they were a media entity. So it, you know, the symbiosis between the news business and their cable operation was better. But it was really, it made me laugh, but it was a very interesting uh, awakening to hear him say that. We'll take a business with a 25% profit margin. Crazy. Yeah. Talk about the role that Roy Cohn, he's an infamous uh, historical figure, and uh, and you write about him in, in, in your book as being a, a player on, on the financial scene in the, in the 60s. Right. So, you know, a- after the SEC did its great uh, study in 1963 and passed the amendments to the securities laws in 1964, it started to, to focus on abuses in the mutual funds. And what the SEC was looking for was a high profile case to really put the fear of God in the mutual fund industry. And what it found was that Roy Cohn had taken over a company called the Fifth Avenue Coach Lines. I used to say to yourself, why could a bus company be an investment company, mutual fund? Well, what happened was uh, as a result of a strike, the city of New York bought the operations of the Fifth Avenue coach line, and it basically had a pile of cash. And of course, what Roy Cohn wanted was to get his hands on that pile of cash. And, and what the company did was it made investments and in, in, in other activities that were not really of an operating nature. So it was, according to the law, a mutual fund, but it wasn't run with any of the guardrails or corporate governance that a mutual fund is supposed to be run by. And uh, an enormous amount of the money went towards paying Roy Cohn's legal fees and for making investments in in companies that were Roy Cohn clients. Um, so he just needed he, a little something to do after he put the Rosenbergs to death. Well, <laughs> yeah, and uh, it's interesting. He was indicted uh, by Bob Morgenthau, who was the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York in those days, mm-hmm. later to become the Manhattan District Attorney for many years. Uh, Roy Cohn was indicted uh, in total three times, two times with charges related to the Fifth Avenue coach line saga. And he beat the rap all three times. Was he his own lawyer? The fact that he was and it's amazing. The middle trial, uh, his lawyer had heart trouble. uh, And Roy Cohn came up with the brilliant idea that he would give the closing argument. He, Roy Cohn, rather than a junior lawyer to his 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 counsel. Mm-hmm. And of course, he didn't testify in the trial, right? He chose to not put himself on the stand. But by giving the closing argument, he effectively had a chance to tell his story to the jury With no without cr- being subject to cross-examination. <laughs> now, uh, now Morgan uh, went cra- as you would imagine, Morgan Ford went crazy. Yeah. Went to the judge in Sir Wyatt and said, how can you allow this to happen? He, he can't testify and not be subject to cross-examination. He's the defendant. Well, the, the judge went through all of the, the records and said, sorry, there's nothing that can prevent him from giving his own closing argument, even though he didn't take the stand. And Roy Cohn was acquitted. Uh, and in the second uh, slew of charges related to the Fifth Avenue coach line case, he, he got 90% of them dismissed and was acquitted on the others in about an hour and a half. Uh, and, and this really created the image of Roy Cohn as the legal executioner, 
as as the man who could beat the government. And and that's what got him clients such as Fred Trump and Donald Trump, <laughs> yep. uh, Cy Newhouse, uh, uh, the, the New York Archdiocese, all five of the New York Mafia families. Uh, when you beat Bob Morgenthau three times, um, and particularly in such dramatic fashion with such bold moves, that has a habit to get people's attention. So ironically, his his criminal acts became his most successful advertisement oh, for business. Wow. That's a, you know, it, alleged criminal acts. Alleged, right? yes. Yeah. But I mean that 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 kind of like is is the so New York model of just being a badass <laughs> where, you know, you make everything illegal look kind of legal because you got away with it or mob like i don't know what i don't know what why we respect those types of badasses or there's tv street shows. fighters yeah yeah street fighters yeah well, exactly. right i mean look there's no question that roy Cohn was a genius sure uh, to come up with that idea uh is takes a special kind of 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 intelligence uh but also he would do anything to win and even respectable quote-unquote uh clients wanted roy Cohn because they knew that if it were a life and death type situation a bet the company type litigation that roy Cohn would make sure that no stone was unturned did you see um, that documentary where's my roy Cohn on Netflix? i did so yeah. good so interesting yeah and uh it, it became and also because he was so ruthless uh his tactics um, he, he was not afraid about being shunned by polite society or the New York Bar Association. You know, he just didn't care. Uh, and when you're dealing with someone who doesn't care, I mean, he would leak whatever it took to uh, Cindy Adams in the New York Post and he would leak things to page six. And he, he, he would just engage in the most brutal tactics. He created and, a template for Donald Trump. And when you have no shame, there's nothing you won't mm -hmm, stoop to. Mm -hmm. And, and it became rules. that, you know, just a letter from Roy Cohn saying I'm representing so and so resulted in settlement of 95 percent of the matters that Roy Cohn was involved in, because wow. it wasn't just his skill in the courtroom. It was the fact that there would be private investigators crawling through your mail and every sort of hardball uh, tactic would be used against you. Well, you said something in your book that I've heard guys on CNBC say when they're question when the talking heads are questioning an economist, the economist always says, "In my business, nobody knows anything," <laughs> right. which is perfect. Well, that, that, when that, when, that, when that somebody line, is asked to make a prediction, he said, "In my business, nobody knows anything." Well, he's, yeah, that 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 was a line from Marshall Kogan, who who was a uh, an investment banker during those days with an upstart firm that had purchased uh, Hayden Stone, which was an old line firm that uh, went bankrupt. Um, and, you know, the point he was making there was that, you know, we all f f had thought that there was a room somewhere where a, a bunch of wise men and wise women are, are, are keeping track of what was going on and making sure that the system was running smoothly. And he said, in, in, in fact, no such controls existed. And uh, nobody really knew what was going on uh, on, on on Wall Street. And, and you know, young, he was a very young man at the time that he and his partner was Sandy Weil, who later became the chairman of, of uh, Citigroup. And that, you know, a few young guys very quickly became owners of some of the largest investment banks in America. 
because they were, you know, better capitalized, had good technology and were very smart. And uh, they did not have a lot of respect for the old guard and that they thought they knew as, as much as they did. In fact, they did. And what, um, what, what do we learn from the 60s that informs us moving forward? Well, number one, that you have to be very skeptical about self-regulation. Um, you really need uh, gatekeepers. And um, one of the problems I, I think that was involved in the Madoff situation was sort of the revolving door, right? Where, you know, if you're at the SEC for a few years, you could become general counsel of a Wall Street firm. And if you threw too many punches, maybe that was going to hurt your career ad advancement. Uh, yep. Or, you know, what was very prevalent in the 1960s was investment banking being intertwined with uh, political figures through fundraising and through serving in their administrations. Mm -hmm. Now, when Wall Street, which had hid the fact that so many of its large firms were insolvent in 1968 and 1969, came to the realization that the problem was out of control. They couldn't bail themselves out and they had to go to Washington. Well, they had some interesting allies in 1970. Mm. One was the chairman of the Democratic Party was Larry O'Brien. And Larry O'Brien, before he became chairman in 1969-70, was the CEO of McDonald and Company, which was the first large investment bank to fail during the crisis. Okay. Mm -hmm. And President Nixon's economic, uh, chief economic advisor, Peter Flanagan, was the husband of one of the members of the McDonald family. So they not only had the chairman of the Democratic Party intimately involved with the investment bank, they also had Nixon's chief economic advisor, Maurice Stans, who was the Secretary of Commerce under Nixon, was CEO of Glorforgan, one of the large investment banks that was insolvent and failed. Bill Casey, who would become chairman of the SEC in 71 and later director of the CIA, was the tax lawyer for many of these firms. And it was a bipartisan type of soft corruption. Mm. They wow. were intertwined on both sides of the aisle. Mm -hmm. So when they came to Washington for their bailout, nobody wanted detailed hearings where you were going to go through and uncover mm -hmm. what went wrong, because both Democrats and Republicans would have looked very bad had there been a Pecora hearings type, you know, in, in, type proceeding like you saw after the stock market crash in 29. Nobody you know, wanted that. I, right. I hope we would have learned something since the 60s, and I hope we would have learned something since 2008. But when they push back and cause to evaporate the Elizabeth Warren Consumer Protection Agency, that made me really mad. I thought that was a great step forward. And maybe because she was a little bit too radical for the business community, but I just thought, well, we were making some headway, and then that happened. Well, I I, I think, and again, I'm I'm um, certainly not in the Elizabeth Warren camp of, of regulation. I'll mm -hmm. disclose right away, but I think more importantly than uh, a rash of new laws and regulations is a, is is vigorous enforcement of the laws you have on the books. 
And it is impossible to police Wall Street without uh, vigilant and aggressive regulation and oversight from Washington, from the SEC, from the Fed, from the OCC. Mm -hmm. Uh, The laws are on the books. I mean, there was nothing here where you said in, in 1970, well, gee, there was a gap in in the regulatory regime. No, you had a net capital rule, which would have shut down all of these investment banks had it been applied. But what had happened was a figure you probably never heard of, a man by the name of John Coleman, who was one of the most important individuals on Wall Street and frankly, in in. In, in the nation during the 1940s and, and 50s and 60s. He had supported FDR in 1940 for a third term. Not many folks on Wall Street did. And he was also chairman of the New York Stock Exchange uh, in the 40s. And he asked one, uh, one uh, favor from FDR. And that was when the SEC adopts this net capital rule, could you have the, the New York Stock Exchange enforce it for its members rather than the SEC. And that exception was agreed to. And, and that was really the original sin of all of this. Self-regulation, which you said was a bad idea. 1940. It was an undermining of regulation <laughs> by delegating to the New York Stock Exchange what should have been and ultimately became the purview of the SEC and not the industry itself regulating itself. Was this your dad, Fritz? Joseph. Oh, no, yeah. no. My father was blue collar. Okay. <laughs> um, well, this is a great book, uh, Richard. We really appreciate your time. And you wrote uh, one previous to this, another Wall Street book. What was the title? Right. What was uh, the title? Wall Street Wars. It, it was about uh, the beginning of regulation of Wall Street by Washington. Until the 1930s, the federal government had no involvement in regulating Wall Street. It was all done by New York State. Mm-hmm. And uh, that uh, began the, uh, the the federal government involvement, obviously started with the stock market crash and then the Pecora hearings. And out of that came Glass-Steagall and the Securities Acts and the Securities Exchange Commission. All right. Um, well, this book is uh, fascinating. It's called Gonzo Wall Street Riots, Radicals, Racism and Revolution, How the Go-Go Bankers of the 60s crashed the financial system and bamboozled Wall Street. You know, as I said about Washington and and I use the same expression I did when talking about the Abraham Lincoln book past this prologue. We learn about our current economic situation. And if, if you were affected by the 2008 crash, it's not the first time that sort of system was set up. But Richard, no, this was the first time where because, again, after those laws were passed in the in the 1930s, Glass-Steagall, the commercial banking, your savings account was protected. But securities business, stock trading, et cetera, you were on your own. Mm-hmm. Washington was not going to bail you out if you were in that business or you lost money in that business. This was the first time, 1970, when Washington bailed out the securities industry. Mm-hmm. And that crossing over into risk-based activities on Wall Street and putting them within the umbrella of the tax p- p- payer. Mm-hmm. That was the beginning of Too Big to Fail and what we saw in, in 2008. Well, it great all began book. here. And we right. just appreciate your conversation with us, Richard. Thank you so much. 
Anytime. Thank you for having me. All right. Of course. Here come your closing credits. Thank you so much for joining us. We would love My pleasure. To, we would love to continue this conversation with you on Instagram and Twitter, where we are at Media Path Pod, and on Facebook, where our show page is Media Path Podcast, and our Facebook group is Media Path with Fritz and Wheezy Podcast Community. You can find full video podcast episodes loaded with bonus visual content on our YouTube channel, Media Path Podcast. And you can write to us at mediapathpodcast at gmail.com. If you enjoy this show, please give us a nice rating and Apple Podcasts and five stars and talk about us if you would on social media. You can sign up for our saucy rag of a newsletter at mediapathpodcast.com. We want to thank our guests, Richard E. Farley, Diane Bay, and Lee Purcell. Our team includes Dina Friedman, John Maddox, Sharon Bellio, Bill Filipiak, Thomas Hubble, Mason Brown, Garrett Arch, and you. Our theme music is by me and John Maddox. I am Louise Palanker here with Fritz Coleman, and we will see you along the media path. Where are we talking to you? Are you in New York now?